Hi, this is Arij Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Crystal DeNapoli is a Camilla Roy astrophysics student at Monash University researching the ways in which the love for her culture and her passion for science intersects. She spends a lot of time presenting her knowledge about Indigenous astronomy and she'll be speaking this Saturday evening at M Pavilion as part of M Talks. I've also seen her stuff and heard bits and pieces of what she's done around the traps in the last little while, so it's actually very exciting to have you here. Thanks for having me. We've been chatting a bit off air about universities and and lots of different things. And I've been thinking a little bit in the last few days, you know, coming up to this interview about astronomy and really kind of conceptualising this thing that is so far beyond our, like, us as people physically, but also in our minds. It's really like a concept or, you know, a thing that is so beyond what we can imagine. Um, and it also is something that in in my heart, like I've, I feel quite close to, but in many ways people might imagine that it is irrelevant to our day-to-day life here on in Australia or on Earth or whatever. What got you thinking about astronomy and got you thinking about this type of science at the beginning when yep. you started started this work? Well, um, I think maybe I'm like a little, little bit lucky. Um, so I grew up in a country town, um, Wangaratta, out in like northeast Victoria. Um, and yeah, I, I had very good access to nice night skies. Mm. Um, and so it really did like sort of blossom from there. Like I always loved maths and stuff, but the actual interest in astronomy and that sort of application was just looking up and seeing just this curtain of little dots right across the sky and you know, just sort of like feeling your place within that. It's mm. like that that is so vast and we must be so small. And so I just, I, yeah, I sort of took a shot at thinking, I want to learn more about this. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't teach it at my high school or anything. And then I got to university. I um, took a like an elective unit in my first year and I was very lucky to have probably one of the most passionate teachers on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that little, like little interest, that little, you know, little spark just turned into this like bonfire of passion for, yeah, astrophysics. It's amazing. And so you're at uni, you're learning, you know, bits and pieces about astronomy. You've really spent your childhood and whatever yeah. thinking about it. Um, did did it align the stuff that you were learning at university and the stuff that you thought about in your childhood or stuff you were taught in your childhood? Sort of. Um, so when I like when I was growing up, the stuff that I did learn was like what my mum could teach me. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that's like just sort of observation stuff. So like looking for um, certain, you know, star groupings in the sky and I always struggled at seeing them. Um, but I sort of went in with a little bit of a blank slate, which is yeah. what's interesting because even um, for me, I engage so heavily with Indigenous astronomy now and Indigenous science in general. And when I grew up, like my mum did her best to teach us about our culture, but I never knew anything about science. Mm. And I feel that's sort of the same for quite a lot of us, um, which is why it was like, I don't know, it was one of those things where I, you know, I get to university and I start sort of like um, poking around. Like I have this interest in astrophysics. I remember having this thing and I wonder, because I feel like a lot of people of colour have actually a similar experience where 
what you're doing and like what you're studying, you sort of want it to benefit your community in a way, right? Yeah. And I've heard that it's common that especially when you don't find that connection, that you have that weird sort of sense of guilt, Mm -hmm. right? And I had that so much. And I remember like meeting just amazing Indigenous students and for them to be like doing just incredible like work in like health sciences and stuff where they're giving back or education, criminology, justice systems. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing nothing. Like it just, you know, it's like I felt selfish. Um, And so for me, um, yeah, sort of like long story short, but it all really changed when I actually had an Indigenous woman, she's Gamilaroi, Carly Noon. I don't know if you've heard of her before, mm-hmm. but um, I read an article about her um, and I was like, Indigenous Indigenous astronomy, what's this? <laughs> um, and I'm reading about a, a girl who went through a very similar upbringing to mine, which isn't the normal nuclear family type thing, mm-hmm. came from like a really sort of rough upbringing. So to read about someone else who didn't really get to engage with their schooling, but still went on to study something incredible, I was like, well, now I need to find out more about her and I need to find out more about this topic. And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really get to have that look at what it would have been like when I was a kid um, to compare it to what it is in, at university, but from university, that's where it's all started and just taken off. It's really interesting because like, I totally feel you about the guilt thing where you're like, Hey, what am I doing? How is this useful? Like for my community, my people, what this thing that I'm doing, but you know, often think there's always a way a but you know thinkings and learnings and teachings and stuff have been happening for thousands and thousands yeah. of years as you discovered um and so so it is useful right to disseminate this information so you you start researching and you start to kind of make links and realizations about the like really deep and insightful teachings of indigenous astronomers who have been doing that for like you said 65,000 plus years and then what? And then what happens with you? You start doing your research and, and where are you at? What happens? So, um, so like for me, especially like learning about Indigenous astronomy, right? Because like, as I've said, I um, didn't know much about it beforehand. It's something that we haven't really had a lot of exposure to because yeah. it's, it's uh, not to be all like, oh, conspiracies, right? But it doesn't really fit with the narrative that we've tended to be taught about Indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but once like learning about it, it just seems so obvious that it exists and that it is so practical because quite a lot of this knowledge, it ties directly into how um, your environment is changing. Yeah. It has that direct link into what's happening on the ground. And so from then on, it's almost like you can't help but notice it. And so, yeah, I've, I feel like it's something that um, sort of like, I guess, like once you learn a little bit about it, it sort of keeps growing from there. Yeah. And so I guess I'm sort of like hoping to keep planting that seed in people's brains where it's like, well, I see this constellation doing this and I know this about our environment or I know this about a certain animal or, you know, gets you thinking about, you know, the um, the uh, constant popping up of similar stories over the years. So yeah. you're just that extra part, that extra chapter in this long history. So, yeah, sorry, convoluted expert. Not convoluted at all, not convoluted <laughs> at all. I think, you know, you've gone out and done lots of talks and presentations and stuff about yeah. Indigenous um astronomy and and lots of people have come and seen you speak and young people and older people and what other responses that people have so it's it's really positive and this is something that I just I'm so happy for and I love um especially I think because especially when you see like a lot of the public figures especially like sort of right-wing groups right Mm. don't speak too positively about aboriginal culture and so I sort of you grow up sort of assuming that maybe that's the general mentality um, through my talks, I've been able to speak with, yeah, just all generations of people. And it has, that is like the most rewarding thing about what I do. Um, and so I get like, 
a lot of like young people um, who are just sort of like enthusiastic, interested over like the topics that we're discussing, um, usually really happy to share with, um, with me some of their knowledge, which is awesome. Um, but one of the things that I, I think I find the most sort of impactful is when I actually have, you know, older adults or like yeah. elderly people um, come up to me and give their sort of response. And usually it's always super positive, right? Mm. And it's usually coming from a place of this is amazing. Why didn't I know about it? Yeah. And so it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's, it's this really positive thing. And the fact is like, it doesn't seem like, even though we have like curriculum changes, which I know is like another topic, right. But even though we have that, it's, I'm still able to, um, I guess like access everyone in the, um, community right. instead of just sort of restricting it to people who are going through the school system and now learning, you know, a more accurate, um, recount of Aboriginal history. Yeah. Now it's, you know, we're still making it so that everyone can actually have access to that. It's very, it's really exciting because I imagine that, um, you know, this information is, has been passed down from like generations and generations of like thought leaders and, and all of that. And then it's, it's kind of being reinvigorated in a way. Um, and now it's being, you know, reinvigorated and put into a national curricula. What is, what is the process of that? That, so that's like um, the outcome of uh, a lot of hard work by some incredible people. I know there's like a mo- lot more involved in this, but I know um, like uh, Marcia Langton and Dwayne Harmaker, so both from Mel- um, Unimelb, worked quite a lot in getting it organised. Um, and since I'm quite close with Dwayne and talking through that process with him, I know, you know, originally it was sort of like, oh, like, let's just get some topics. We can put them into the curriculum mm-hmm. um, and, you know, teachers can incorporate it and we can teach like a range of subjects. There's like seven different subjects of Indigenous knowledge or Indigenous science. Um and yet for them, it wasn't enough because like they want to make sure it's done properly. Yeah. They want to make sure that it's accurate information. It's easy for teachers to engage with. And it's something that people would easily incorporate instead of, you know, yeah. Um, and so I'm, they just went to so much effort to write out activities and ways you can actually demonstrate it and kids can learn it and kids can bring that home and also recreate it for their families. So it's, it's an incredible thing. And it's definitely going to change the way that um, kids in primary school and high school think about Indigenous culture. Because mm. um, I know, for example, right, um, one of the most common uh, misconceptions is that Indigenous uh, groups were largely like nomadic groups. So they're like hunter-gatherers, you know, no um, like agricultural practices, no set housing and things like this, which is entirely false. And that's one of like the main things I have to sort of break down at the start of my talks because I'm almost at the point where I forget that that's actually the common attitude right, right, right. or the common understanding, um, even like presenting in front of like academics who I really respect for like their astrophysics knowledge and for them just to be surprised by, oh, like it's, it's not nomadic. And it's like, no, it's, it's definitely not like, oh, okay. Yep. Good. I have to remember we're starting at that point with everyone and that's fine. Um, but this way, at least it's like sort of, you know, you get to those younger generations and that becomes, I guess, like that common knowledge that's going to move on, you know, in the next hundred years, hopefully all generations are sort of across it. Yeah, yeah. And I guess even beyond um, thinking about astronomy and thinking about science, it is about identifying that, you know, this land has been occupied and lived on for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years. And therefore, there are knowledge systems ingrained within the fibre of it um, that are of real important value to sustaining it and, you know, to the people who live on it and that actually being like a fact and not an opinion. Yeah, exactly. Like it shouldn't be controversial. And I 
I get it. Like not to like be like, oh, popping into like political topics that even I probably don't fully understand. But I understand the way this like nation was colonized or invaded. I get the narrative that needs to go along with that or else it's not being done on proper terms. Right. Right. So I get why. It's not, it doesn't justify it, but I get why, you know, it's easier to say, oh, we've, we've helped you know, Aboriginal people so much when we arrived. I think we've moved past that point where we should just be able to acknowledge, like, actually, no, like, world's longest continuing culture, um, that we actually have, like, from everything we can see, right, with our, the different, the many different topics in Indigenous astronomy and obviously other forms of Indigenous knowledge, but this is obviously science is my niche. Um, but we have evidence of this being like the world's first examples of this stuff being practiced. Um, so even like for us to have stone arrangements related to astro- um, like astronomy, yeah. that dates like, you know, thousands of years before Stonehenge or even things like the the bread baking, right? Thinking that like, what was it, the ancient Egyptians? I don't remember like the timescale for them. And then for us to be doing it like it was like 30,000 years beforehand. Yeah. But it's cool and it's stuff that I feel like everyone should be excited about. Not e- like not even just Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous, where it's like we're lucky to be on this land that has so much knowledge. And it's it's like essentially where like, you know, this boom of human innovation started. Right. And I know. So I, that's sort of my perspective as well. It's like it's something that we should, you know, it's a positive thing. We all get to take on board, be proud of, share. Yeah. And it also extends our knowledge, right? Yeah. You know, we're thinking about these huge fires that have been happening and continue um, for the last however many months. And clearly there is a, a gap in knowledge. Clearly yeah. there is a lot that needs to be learnt when it comes to managing land and managing water um, in Australia. Yeah. And therefore that is an extension of that knowledge as well, right? People, you know, there are ways where that, there are ways that things happen and there are ways that things have happened yeah. and it's important to know them. Definitely. So fire is just such a great example, especially I think um, that's an area where there should be so much consultation with Indigenous leaders, um, particularly on like, uh, I guess, like the sort of like the burning off methods. I've read so much um, in terms of, you know, bushfires and that just essentially not really being a thing or existing at all prior mm. to like the 1800s and that you can actually see that by looking at those um, I guess like uh, layers of bark or rings of bark or whatever on the tree, almost like dating it back in years, you can date back and see when it's been burnt to a certain extent, especially if you're taking all the trees. So it's like physical evidence we can use, but then also bring that back to astronomy, right? There are so many things that have happened on this land that have only been recorded in oral traditions, in these stories. And it's stuff that we still have access to as long as we're just listening to the right people. And for things like, um, you know, volcanic eruptions and meteorite impacts being described in oral traditions, we can date that back. It's incredible. And so it gives us an insight into even like the geological features of this state or around the country that we're not going to get any other way. And so I think I so I, I just think that, yeah, it's something that we should really be valuing and engaging with. And patterns, right? It gives you an insight into the patterns and what the context of what has been going on for such a long time. Like that is the ideal science experiment, right? For something to, you know, to have research that dates back thousands and tens of thousands of years. It's like the best way to to work out how to move forward and what the patterns are. And, you know, it's the the longest dating experiment essentially, right? definitely. Um, so you're speaking on Saturday evening um, yep. at M Pavilion, Queen Vic Gardens, um, right by Flinders Street Station. Yep. What can people expect? Uh, so um, 
it seems like it's going to be such a great night. So perfect weather. So it seems like, you know, sort of nice 20s, cool, sunny. It's going to be great. Um, and I'm going to give um, an overview of everything, like my favorite topics within Indigenous astronomy. Um, and I talk about everything. So whether it's, um, you know, looking at not only just like the different types of constellations, so different ways of looking at the night sky. So, you know, drawing those dots between the bright stars and creating some sort of picture. That's actually not um, the most common or it's not the, the main way of looking at stars for Indigenous Australians. We, because we're in the Southern Hemisphere, we get dark sky constellations mm. looking at the Milky Way. So teaching observation um, techniques, but also, you know, predicting weather patterns from the right. stars and, um, you know, oh, like the planets, um, you know, they've always been a point of mystery in a, for even Greek astronomers, right? Indigenous Australians have their own stories and their own understanding. Um, there is just so many things, supernova, big fiery death of stars being recorded in oral traditions. And it's just, there is so much to talk about and it's so exciting for me because I get to go over everything and I feel like there's like a little bit of something for everyone in it. Yeah. Yeah. So it should be a good night. Bring everyone. No bookings required. No we just bookings. turn up. It's kind of loose. I, when I saw that on the website, I was like, okay. My my <laughs> event, I don't know how common it is for M Pavilion, but I, I see the other events and they're pretty like, it seems normal for it to be in like maybe 200 people engaging with the event. Makes sense. We're at three and a half thousand. I know. And it's, it's a little bit loose. There will be like 5,000 people there just standing oh. across the road. You have to have like big mics yeah, and speakers can, and stuff. We'll, we'll see what happens on the night. Um, but, you know, even if like it's five people, you know, still talk my heart out because it's always so fun. Because essentially for me as well, I just treat the talks. I used to be so nervous, right? Yeah. And I just treat the talks like a conversation. Um, at this point, that was like the best advice I got. Like, if you're trying to explain this to your siblings, and I have six of them, right? So, you know, I'm getting used to these big numbers already. <laughs> but just trying to explain to them something I'm passionate about, and that's the way I go about my talks. And so it's something I feel is accessible and engaging for kids right through to adults. Yeah. yeah. It's very, very exciting that you're doing this work, and you can head down to M Pavilion on Saturday evening. It is, what, 7.30? Yeah. 7.30pm, yep. no bookings necessary. It'll be a little bit loose, but I reckon maybe come a little bit early. So yeah, you snag can a get, seat or get a good, a good spot. spot. Um, Crystal, thank you so much for coming in and hanging out. Oh, thank you for having me. Crystal DiNapoli is a Camilla Roy astrophysics student at Monash University researching the ways in which the love for her culture and her passion for science intersect. She spends a lot of time presenting her knowledge about Indigenous astronomy and she'll be speaking at M Pavilion on Saturday night as part of M Talks. It's at Queen Vic Gardens. No bookings necessary. Just come around for an evening of knowledge sharing. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now I introduce the lovely weird Alice Yankadig, who is a Canadian two-spirit and drag thing based here in Melbourne, a member of the House of Orphans. They're currently coming to the end of their time as artist in residence at the Abbotsford Convert, where they're hosting Drop Deadly Gorgeous the Pageant. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I just want to get right into it. We spoke for a second off air about pageants. And pageants are interesting for many reasons. You know, there is... A little bit of tension in my heart when it comes to pageants and seeing the institution and the performance of a pageant in the way that it looks like in the mainstream. Where do you fit into that? Where did you come into that and in thinking about pageants? Well, a lot of my art and what I do in performance and activism and everything is centered around taking up space in places where 
I've been told and other people have been told they're not welcome, whether it's been directly people saying it or through actions of exclusion. And pageants are extremely, like, they're horrendously colonial. They're very Eurocentric. They're also based on, like, a very specific beauty standard. They put a lot of stock in specifically, like, physical beauty. Um, And I find them extremely stressful. But I love, like, the pageantry in the campness of it and the idea of things being over the top Mm-hmm. And everybody being able to kind of live in that sphere, but then like break the rules of it. So I wanted to, I've I've been in pageants before mm-hmm. that are specifically meant to subvert it. So several years ago, I was in one in Toronto called Bent Supreme. It's a busted beauty pageant. And it took six different queer performers. Um, and it was people... A lot of them who did more like activisty stuff, mm-hmm. um, doing their interpretation of a pageant, <clears throat> and so with that, I got to just kind of break a bunch of rules and be in something I never thought I'd be welcomed into. And I decided that with my residency that I wanted to invite a bunch of people who should be getting a bigger platform and to pre- present them with a different audience, but still take that kind of pop culture almost like dark comedy like Mm. view at it and so make fun of that institution while still being able to like participate so there's there's like no entry fees um there's no real parameters Mm -hmm. to what they can do I've given them the categories but I even had somebody in our group chat who's like extremely stressed out about the idea of formal wear because we're doing swimwear, talent, and formal. But whether or not someone comes in a bikini or comes dressed as, like, the friggin' ocean Mm -hmm. or whatever, I kind of want to see both ends of that, whatever someone wants to do as their performance to take out of that. And so with formal, they were really concerned that they don't have anything to wear. And thankfully, one of the other, before I could answer, contestants was like, you know, formal wear is like a colonial thing and mm-hmm. you can wear whatever you want in it and how you want to present that feeling. So some people are going extremely cultural with it. I think a lot of the contestants are mocking it mm-hmm. in the way that I I have before. The last time I did one, I wore a completely see-through gown mm-hmm. with nothing under it. And what they didn't tell me were the lights were the same color as the gown, so it actually just looked like I was naked on stage. <laughs> um, with a little, like, tra- like train, like, fishtail around my I love and respect ankles. <laughs> yeah. And so I just kind of wanted to take this space to celebrate queer, trans artists of color, especially First Nations and Torres Strait Islander and Pacifica artists, mm-hmm. um, who aren't always given the spotlight in their own places. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these are very focused in the drag world or the model world. And so it's not all drag queens. It's I think we have one cis man competing and Mm -hmm. they're not white um and so it's not focused on and some of them like i feel like everybody in it is a model but no one's someone who works as like a model in that in that realm and so i wanted to like take that and give it all like the flash and pizzazz while still kind of 
you know, cutting the idea of it at its knees. Yeah. And so I'm trying to imagine practically in my head how how this is going to work. And so you've got it, – it's going to have like a classic kind of pageant setting in, in its context, mm-hmm. but clearly it's, it's not your typical pageant. So people will be coming in different themes and they'll be like modelling or whatever during the themes and then there are judges. Yeah, so we've got eight contestants um, – from across the board, drag king, drag queen, someone who does performance art. Um, we've got a comedian. We've got singers, a burlesque dancer, and they're going to come out in each category and do their thing. So one of them is talent, and they've got their, like, five-ish minutes to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the things they're doing are really amazing i'm very excited i'm gonna be sitting on stage the whole time trying not to give running commentary but i just want to like so i can sit and watch it um i've got my own little thing and then we've got five judges originally it was going to be not artists um but other queer industry people but i ended up adding in um astro and stone motherless cold who both won um, the title at NADOC last year for like the fate kind of the face of like NADOC pride mm-hmm. and um, they're the like the final two judges so they're both performers but they also you know they get to come in and wear their like sash because they've, they've won a thing mm-hmm. and they get to give their opinions on it and I've told everybody it's not going to have very standard categories for like judging as well it's just kind of more so like presence and a lot of other things like that where you can still subvert how you're judging it and there are um because it's their prizes for it are like paid gigs throughout the year at other queer events and it's also you've got an audience that's made up of a bunch of people who would have never seen you before Mm -hmm. so it's kind of it's celebrating everyone and we've got some some gag prizes and everything so that's just like it's still making fun of that while still having while not diminishing like the art form of the people involved right and I guess if you're you know kind of dismantling what this pageant institution is Mm -hmm. then the lens by which you're judging the judging in inverted commas the people who come in has to also be part of the disruption it couldn't it couldn't be like we're doing all of this and then we're still judging the way people you know physique in inverted commas and what it means to have a classic physique or classically beautiful physique or exactly. whatever that means yeah so and one of one of the judges was talking to me because they've competed in um a burlesque competition yeah. before and they got their like sheets back with comments from the judges and their their markings and like how it made them feel and it's like I would rather any commentary from the judges be either like very like comedic but still supportive because we're not here to cut down the artist no. it's here or to pit them against each other although I'm glad they're getting into the spirit in their little group chat I love a bit of, of competition like, oh just taunting each other <laughs> love that. one of them said that there I asked the length of their numbers so that I could make my run sheet and one of them said it's four minutes and seven seconds followed by 59 minutes of applause. <laughs> um, and then another one was uh. like, well, mine's four minutes and six seconds. That's six seconds of performing and four minutes of applause. <laughs> and just like today, one offered to get someone something from the shops. And they're like, cool, get me looks for all my outfits. <gasps> like, well, I'll go to, you know, basic bitches are us and get you your thing. And like they're having fun with it, which is really good because that's I love what I that. want. Yeah. Like very inspired by like watching 
comedy movies like Drop Dead Gorgeous and Miss Congeniality mm-hmm. that very much make fun of it because it's still a huge institution. Absolutely. And there are whole like industries and whole TV shows and reality TV shows that are based on like pageants for young girls and pageants as they as people get older and these big achievements of like you know this is the first like black woman who's won Miss World or whatever and and that as like this big conceptual like in this big institution it's very complicated and it's also just really just like fraught with problems yeah inherently in its in its core no totally and that's one of the things about it so I wanted to just again, because it's not the people who take part in the pageant that's no. the issue. It is just the institution of it and how it's run. Because there's nothing wrong with wanting to like get up, dress up, show off what you're good at in yeah. front of a bunch of people, and then get like and get a prize for it. Get Absolutely. a prize. Absolutely. Like I've I've just applied to like a big international like jokey drag one that I don't think I'll get into. But it's like why why not? Because it's it, it's fun and it also challenges them a bit artistically because I'm taking people one of the contestants is a rapper they've never done anything like this and they're like what do I do and I was like exactly like have fun with it I want to see you just take it however you want because that makes it more interesting no one needs to see eight people in the same dress talk about how they're going to solve world peace yeah every time what are you passionate about but and like you said it's definitely not the people who participate it is the institution and it's how it's run and who's at the top of it and who gets the most out of it exactly so in the last kind of maybe five or so years there's been a bit of a pop culture peak like a mainstream pop culture peak when it comes to like ballroom culture and drag queens and you know through shows like um RuPaul's Drag Race and Pose and other programs that have really brought a lot of this kind of performance culture into the mainstream in a way that you know maybe people haven't seen especially haven't seen people of color in that um in the past has that in any way influenced impacted the work that you do and the events you run and the stuff that you're up to well like things like Drag Race definitely have because I started drag, I feel like it's just before Drag Race started or around the same time as like the first season when no one was watching it. <laughs> um, and it was, I think it was on VH1. Um, and really I will, late at night. I will, yeah. I will watch anything. <laughs> I, I am a, like a pop culture, like trashy movie, just fiend. I, I, I can hate the ethos behind a show and like watch it to the bitter end if I'm in it enough. Hence why I'll, I'll watch like the next season of Drag Race and everyone to come because I like, I like silly drama on TV. It gives me like an escape from how awful everything else is, even though it's still really problematic. Um, but it's also just the prevalence of those things have helped the mainstream, but also myself, like, look more into our own queer histories and like reflect on what I'm doing in the spaces that I'm taking up because like I am indigenous but I'm extremely white presenting like I'm red as white and trying to find that way of instilling culture both like both indigenous culture but like queer culture Mm -hmm. in what I do and while still taking just like taking the piss and breaking the rules of things because I grew up just a lot of black comedy and like Joe Motters is one of my idols and all these new um, new lenses on old stories that weren't being told are extremely fascinating and it's exhausting to see the same story told over and over about the same people who 
most of us don't relate to. Yeah. And now we're getting this look again into ball culture on a mainstream and into pageants. They just released, um, I, I got to see it at the Capitol Theater a few months ago, but the Restoration of the Queen, mm-hmm. which is the 1968 um, pageant that led to kind of the beginning of like the split with like ball culture and houses and um, how even then there was an immediate critique of the white supremacy in it. And even though the winner of that pageant was a trans woman, um, she was a very affluent passing white trans woman who there was a lot of critique about like why she won and who she was friends with versus these trans women of color who just decided to leave the the like that that pageant world even though it was it was mainstream but it was still very underground um but it was still main it was still higher up within like queer communities to like go and subvert that and go and run balls and i'm seeing them pop up more and more here thankfully in um non-white spaces Mm -hmm. um because there are parts of the world where balls exist and it's extremely white even though it's that's not the history of it um and so having categories that again like people can walk in and be celebrated and the whole point of that was to do things that you know live your fantasy mm-hmm. live your live your fantasy that you might not get to live outside for whatever external factors there are and i wanted to take all these people who i think should be highlighted um all these amazing artists who only get used in tokenistic purposes you'll get the one person like people patting themselves on the back for having like one one black person on their bill or one trans person on their bill or focusing on um people's obsession right now with like afab performers which i like i get but at the same time i'm really sick of this because it just seems like a way to center they're talking about cis women they're not talking about trans men they're forgetting about trans women um and they're doing it to like attempt to like confront the misogyny in queer spaces, which is a big issue, but that but doing it in this very way where you shine a light on yourself and forget about everybody else and make the problem about you. And um, I have like a lot of, I re- just have a lot of people across the, the gender spectrum and the identity spectrum and everything, even including just the types of performances that they do mm-hmm. on it. Because the, the point is not to like pat yourselves on the back, but to actually give a platform to these types of artists. And there's enough platforms for everyone else. And it's like, it's our turn to have fun and like take center stage for a minute and get credit for what we do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I guess for people who come to, be a supporter or someone who's going to come to be part of the experience, There is there, um, you know, often like in this context of, you know, Midsummer and in this context of, you know, the Abbotsford Convent, which is in Melbourne and, you know, it's a public event essentially. It's mm-hmm. not a private event. So anyone can come into this space and, you know, be like, experience this pageant and experience this culture that, you know, for, for people, it might actually not be familiar to them and also might not be their history and their context, right? Is there a um, is there a way in which people can and should be within that space if it is not if it is not theirs? Well, we're gonna get like a lot of the people who are coming to the space. It's most of us, like even me. Like I, it's not it's not my space. I'm 
I'm indigent to the other side of the world. Right. Like I'm, I'm a guest here. Most of us are, or, or a lot of us are. Um, and the way to do it is to come to support it. Like people have been buying their tickets and also, um, people have been suggesting, you know, buy tickets to gift to people of color and black people and indigenous people who can't afford to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and unwaged trans folks and whoever but like buy tickets come you're there to enjoy like an experience you're watching a show we do have a bit of a party element to it hip-hop ho is going to be djing Mm -hmm. and also i've encouraged everybody to dress up in what they think is their pageant finery so i'm sure some people um we've got some amazing performers who just did miss gay and trans australia which is um a pageant but it's i I do love that it is focused on on queerness without shunning out trans people and a lot of them are going to come and i know they're going to come in their like their looks and guaranteed their gowns are a million times better than like some of anything that i've like ever seen i've seen photos of what they've worn because they put a lot of stock into that and their crowns and their sashes i want that and then we're going to have people coming in a look that's definitely making fun of pageants some people in just their regular street clothes i've got you know, photographer, so everybody is involved and you can get your photo taken in front of a photo wall, but also we've got a prize for best, like, bell of the ball of, yeah. like, the attendees. Yeah. Um, so I want to see everyone kind of just come in what they think is their best, like, pageant party outfit or not. Yeah. But just come and enjoy it. We've got on-site, they've, the convent has got uh, Mabu Mabu, mm-hmm. who are a Torres Strait Islander restaurant, yeah. serving food, which I'm so excited about. And just, and then a lot of like local independent um, businesses who have donated like prizes. And we're just, it's, it's a community event while still being a show. Right. So I want it to be for everybody on kind of a mixture of fringes of our communities while still respecting and enjoying like the art of queer trans POC that you don't that don't always get the chance to have the spotlight that they definitely deserve and should be getting all the time. Agreed. It's really um, exciting because there's so many cool things coming out of um, Midsummer and at the Convert at the moment this specific um, pageant is part of the Queer Unsettled program at Midsummer, And there are a bunch of things like earlier, like I mentioned, we spoke with Ripley about their awesome project that's pre-launching. The EP's pre-launch is uh, tomorrow night um, of family. And so it's really amazing that all this stuff is really coming out and being highlighted and people are have access to come to these events and see these things, but also they are organised through and through by those who are part of those communities. And that's a really kind of important element of that. Oh, totally. And they're all, so they're all in the same room. They're in the, the Magdalene, the Magdalene North Laundries, which does have like a pretty grim and heavy history. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And um, it's good to have these like positive and very celebratory and very cultural events in these spaces but they're all that weekend in the same room so it's mm-hmm. like families on Thursday and then um, Blow is like a ball on Saturday night with Fafswag and they're like they're over from Aotearoa and I'm so excited for that like I'm, get- I'm getting no sleep this weekend <laughs> while I still have to like Organize everything, yeah. organize everything and like put on a gown and set up decorations and I'm just like if 
any time was the time to like do things I wouldn't normally do. It's like now is the time, like no sleep for me, but I can't miss any of these parties. And then there's the Lunar New Year disco yeah. at the Melbourne Museum on Friday night, which is like, again, it's there because it's bigger and, you know, Johnny gets to live his dream curating at the <laughs> Melbourne Museum and having these amazing international artists like Pangina Heels and Chrissy Chu come over. And that's also a ball, but it's focused more on like whacking and punking dramatics. Like we're taking all of these very over the top, their own type of pageantry events, like a giant like EP launch party. I saw some of the decor yesterday in the space when they were doing their run through while I was like measuring my catwalk <sighs> space because I've got like LED like lights to be on the catwalk. Like we're all, I think everyone is just going full in to be like, it's, it's midsummer and we all know that these other events are happening, but we're going to take up a lot of space and it's in this like huge celebratory light. And there were like smaller events as part of Queer and Settled and it's just like such a really beautiful program that Midsummer's got this year and I would want hopefully it to be a thing they do every year not just like here's our one-off theme like I would love that there to have been enough success from it this year um, that they're willing to like have that as a as a set program that more people can be part of, or even something like that off shooting and being its own it's thing, own festival, which yeah. I would I would love. And if it doesn't happen, like you know, talk to people to make sure something like that does happen. Yeah. Um. But it's amazing that like Midsummer has worked with, as opposed to just taking over and speaking to and like filling slots, but worked with all of these amazing queer people of color to ask them what they want to do and how they want to present their thing and given us a lot of space to do such and it's just and same with the convent they've been so helpful on everything and they're so supportive of these types of things and they're so excited to have us in that space yeah and i mean, they should be right they like, should it be is, it is it's also exciting just and so surreal sometimes yeah. like having this residency blows my mind i never a thing i never thought i'd be able to do because yeah. it's not like lots of people do it it's two a year and that's that's something very new for me yeah it was my first time applying to anything like this and I got it and I was kind of told to like do whatever I want and we're here and with like a little bit of like brainstorming to cut down my million and ten ideas <laughs> like got to do this and hopefully with the numbers that we have like tickets are selling really fast mm-hmm. and I'm fairly certain we're going to sell out um which would be amazing because it's gonna be a huge party um be able to do this yearly and it originally wasn't gonna be just queer people of color just queer people but it's like I was making my list of people I wanted to involve and I could do this probably 10 years in a row and not run out of like existing current amazing queer trans people of color without having like an overlap where it became all the people doing the same thing so I'm very just curious to see what it morphs into but also how the night turns out and hopefully <laughs> hopefully it's what I envision and if anything crashes and burns I hope it's like me in a really hilarious way <laughs> like I'm in some bad like trashy movie that everyone can like have fun with it where like just you've got all the right people in the room you've got all the right people in a room doing something that is very exciting it's going to be made it might not be what you envision but it's going to be made yeah exactly and that's that's exciting so when is it where can folks get tickets what are those details it's on this sunday which is the 9th of february at the abbotsford convent in the north laundries it is uh, doors at 6.30, show is at 7, and it is going to run on time. Drag time is not a thing that I 
acknowledge we've got people have places to be we also have like a strict end time for like noise requirements because okay. it's, people live and work out of that space and um it's the tickets are available on the midsummer website it should be on the main page also the abbotsford convent website's the mm-hmm. main page it'll take you directly to the tickets um you can also follow um i'm on instagram it's i don't get weird drag and Drop Deadly Gorgeous as well, and all the information is there. Um, and the tickets are $30 for full price, 25 for concession. And if um, there are um, Cutie Pock people who want tickets or Mob who want tickets, they can message Drop Deadly Gorgeous directly, and we can get them a discount rate as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely want everyone to be able to afford to go um, and just be there and, like, fill up this space with a bunch of people who you wouldn't Again, you don't normally get to see. I want people meeting people they haven't met before and just having a party outside of, like, the few spaces that we've been making for ourselves and just kind of, like, all intermingle. And so I'm just, yeah. So it's, again, Sunday night. It's the last day of midsummer, and it's, like, the way to close it out, which is really good this, like, whole last weekend. That's very exciting. It's yeah. a big weekend. There's it's a, a lot of happening. It's a big weekend. <laughs> and a busy weekend. I am already exhausted. Yep. I'm doing some workshops tonight that, as part of the festival as well that I'm taking um, at Chunky Move, and it's just, like, there's going to be no sleep. Still sewing, <sighs> still making props. What did I say? Sleep when you're dead. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Next week, whenever. Exactly. That's what I said. I said, I'll die on Monday, <laughs> and... My friend was like, no, we can't die. I said, no, 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 I'll resurrect two weeks later. <laughs> yeah. But I am like, I am bumping out and I'm dying Monday and I do not exist <laughs> until like the end of the month. I love that. Skip Valentine's Day, skip all that nonsense. And I you guys can like wake you. me up with like snacks and something smoke and I'll be and I'll be back. I love it for you so much. Uh, Weird Alice Yankadick is a Canadian two-spirit and drag thing based in Melbourne, a member of the House of Orphans. They're currently coming into the end of their time as artists in residence at the Abbotsford Convent where they're hosting drop deadly gorgeous the pageant like we mentioned info and tickets on the abbotsford convent and midsummer websites there are some tickets available and you can hit up drop deadly gorgeous on socials if you need some help with any info or all of that stuff but i highly recommend you go it's this sunday night thank you so much for coming thank you thanks for listening to this podcast of triple r's the wrap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nation's land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.